0: Now we are going to go into the sermon, and um, we started last year in the month of May with the life and ministry of Elijah. So that's in 1 Kings 17, um, we we learned the story of Elijah, and we had season one um, last year, which kind of came to a close, Um, and this year we're going to be continuing with um, the second part of Elijah's ministry. Elijah is one of the greatest and well-known prophets of the Old Testament. We learned of his story up until the part where he calls Elisha to be his apprentice. And for those who have missed those sermons, you can probably find them on our website. And I know that's probably many, given the high turnover at IBCD one year. We have uh, quite a few new people. And But today, before we start, we're going to review shortly what we've learned about Elijah. So Elijah Elihu. In Hebrew, means my God is Yahweh, and Yahweh is the Hebrew proper name for God. And we saw that Elijah served um, during the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Elijah was a prophet to an apostate nation in a period which was, you know, one of the most evil times uh, in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. At this time when Elijah was serving, it was Israel had been divided into the northern and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom comprised 10 tribes, and the other two were in the southern kingdom. Elijah was a man who often stood apart. He was a prophet who was often standing alone, called to um, challenge the prophets of Baal, because um, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel you know, had introduced pagan worship, and so God was not feared anymore. And then we learned that the people who were the prophets of God were actually in hiding, because a lot of them died in this time. So Elijah was a man who was obedient and faithful to God's call, even when it was risky and even when um, yeah it led to confrontation. We saw that Elijah was a man of prayer. He operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. Elijah was a man who prayed and the rain, the heavens were shut for three and a half years. And he prayed again and the heavens were opened and rain came. So, and we see a lot of references to Elijah throughout the Bible. We also saw that Elijah was a man like us. In that Elijah dealt with fear and depression and he ran. And that is where we left it off. Elijah ran and God met him where he had, when he ran. Elijah was afraid for his life. Elijah got depressed and he wanted to die. But God gave him a renewed focus. God told him to appoint Elisha as his apprentice. And so Elijah now had a companion. He had someone to walk with him. That's in 1 Kings 19 where we ended. The story then breaks off, and in 1 Kings 20, we read about some of the wars, the wars that King Ahab fought um, against King the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad. And I encourage you to read those stories. You know, Elijah doesn't really feature in them, but they are also very um, insightful in that we learn a lot about God's patience and God's forbearance and how he tries to reach King Ahab, even though he's the most evil king who has killed tons of his prophets. So I encourage you to read verse 20, uh, chapter 20 of the book of 1 Kings, and today we are going to continue in verse in chapter 21, where the story of Elijah picks up again. We're going to read the story. It's the story of Naboth's vineyard, and we're going to focus on the first part of the story today. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard for, for you, to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sullen, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and sit Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But sit two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed the fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death then they sent watch to Jezebel Naboth has been stoned to death as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death she said to Ahab get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you he is no longer alive but dead when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. In this story, we read about how something innocuous as wanting to plant vegetables ends up with lies, perjury, and death. And I think this story and the parallels like it in the Bible tell us exactly how we come into sin sometimes it gives us basically an anatomy of sin which is corroborated by the Bible other passages so we're going to look at this an anatomy of sin how do we get there King Ahab was very wealthy and we know this because he had a lot of silver and gold which the king of Aram had tried to get in chapter 20 right that was the reason they went to war the king asked for his gold and his silver and all the goods that belonged to him so the king was not a poor person but despite his possessions he wanted Naboth's vineyard he coveted it basically and why because it is close to my palace he said But Naboth refused to sell this vineyard because it was his ancestral inheritance. And of course, this caused, well, not of course, it caused surprise and anger in um, King Ahab. He offered a better vineyard. He offered to pay for it. It was just out of his reach. And why did he want it? He had many others, right, which were convenient. It was not like he was going to drive himself there. He had chariots and horses and horsemen who would take him there if he needed to go. But this one was close by. And Naboth was not just being spiteful when he said, the Lord forbid. He says the Lord forbid because the commands of God in the land of Israel actually forbade him from doing it. It was against the law of Moses. In Leviticus 25 verse 23, God commanded that land must never be sold on a permanent basis. And in Numbers 36 verse 7, we also learned that this land may not, land may not pass from tribe to tribe. So when Naboth says the Lord forbid, it's because, yeah, it was against God's law. It must not have been easy to stand up to the king. It was being offered wealth and it was a person of authority. But Naboth chose to obey God instead of men. And sometimes when we do that, it's going to cost us. But how did Ahab react to this refusal? Well, The Bible tells us in 1 Kings 21, verse 4, So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. This was a grown man, and he went home and sulked, and would not eat. Now, as human beings, we love our conveniences, don't we? It's like, that make our lives a little easier more comfortable and in fact billion dollar businesses have been built on this idea right in the tech industry where i work it's there's a saying that convenience trumps everything and that's the core of it if you would take whatever people do and make it just a little bit more convenient for them easy for them they will throw money at you people will give up liberties and freedoms for the sake of convenience And I'm not saying convenience is bad like don't get me wrong I love convenience as much as the next person but when convenience becomes our god then it starts to lead us into dark places then it becomes time that we need to re-examine our lives and sometimes that's also the reason we fast right people fast also for different things because you realize this thing has started to have a hold over you and you're trying to give it up to break that hold What inconveniences in your life cause you to sulk or to be sullen and angry as Ahab was? Is it when you're standing in the supermarket and somebody swerves in and cuts in line? Or is it when you're driving and somebody is just driving a lot slower than the speed limit? This one gets to me, I have to confess. When someone is doing 14 and 80 zone, it's like, Or is it when sometimes we are asked to open our homes to refugees, to people who have no home, people who are suffering? And it's just a bit inconvenient, right? I have to adapt my schedule to accommodate for this person. I have my morning routine. It's inconvenient. It's not a good time. We love our conveniences. Or when we are commanded in scriptures to give You know, to give to the work of God, to give to the poor around us. And we struggle with it because it's inconvenient. It's like my holiday, but I've planned for my holiday. And this doesn't fit in my budget. We struggle with the desires in us because we want things. We want the convenience. These are things that we feel we deserve. We feel we have worked for, we've earned. I worked hard for this money. Why should I just give it to someone? who's lazy, presumably, even though we probably don't know anything about that person's life story, right? But it's inconvenient for us. It's my precious. I want to hold on to it. Ahab went home and sought. And often we do the same. Many times we are just, as Ahab was, Now, in kids, this is obvious, right? When a kid is sulking, parents, you know, especially your preteens and teens, a lot of sulking going on and kids have no inhibitions yet. They, you know, express what they are feeling and, you know, you know when you have to negotiate or whatever, talk to them about it. But in adults, we don't often sulk this openly, right? We are usually more sneaky about it. We become passive aggressive, right? We, We don't want to admit that Mm, this is the reason why we are behaving that way. So we smile and put on a show. But inside in our hearts, we are sulking like anyone else. We choose not to eat food like Ahab was. You know, come home and your spouse is cooked and it's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not hungry. I'm just not hungry. It's fine. We make excuses and we don't want to admit to ourselves what's going on. Or we make comments that hurt people deeply. And we know exactly what we are doing right you know just where to push the buttons where to cut them but we do it in a way that is plausibly deniable it's like oh no i was just saying this like mm, i didn't oh if they take it that way it's their own but of course we add a lie onto what we are already doing It is just to cut that person and the closer we know the people the easier it is to cut them deep because we know them we know where the wounds are we know what buttons to push Or we withhold intimacy from our spouses because we are sulking. We didn't get exactly what we wanted. And I hear headaches, a common excuse there as well. But we don't like it when people point out that we are sulking. And why is that? It's because we know that it's connected to immaturity. We know that this is something we'd expect from kids. So we don't like it when someone says, what you're doing is actually sulking behavior. So that's why we do all of the, you know, lying and cover-up or plausible deniability just to say like, no, 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 I'm fine, but we are not fine. On adult sulking is not a good look at all. But why are we sulking? Why Why do we get there in the first place? And the Bible tells us that this usually starts with our desires, expectations. We want something, but we do not have it. The Bible tells us in the book of James, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin often starts there. Not that the desires in themselves are bad, right? Like sometimes they're innocent desires. Sometimes they might be sinful desires. But often starts there. In our desires, the things we want, the things we covet. For Ahab, it was a vineyard, one that was just closer, that he could look out of his palace and see, something more convenient. And that's where the the seed of sin is sown. In the Garden of Eden, for Eve, it was the desire for knowledge. What's so bad about that? I want to gain more knowledge, I want to know more. But every time a desire leads us out of the will of God, we fall into sin. And in Eve's case, it was because it was disobedience to God. It was rebellion. What starts as an innocent desire can grow and transform quickly and become deadly. Sulking is one possible response when we do not get what we want. And sometimes we sulk, but there's another extreme to sulking. And that's when, for example, you see in kids, with thro- they throw the tantrum, right, in your toddlers, where your preteens and your teens may sulk and go like, oh, you know, and go to their room, whatever. The toddlers, they just let it all out. And all the parents of little kids, I can see you nodding in agreement. You know how it is in the supermarket when the kid has seen the sweets that they want, and you said no. And then a meltdown starts or when you refuse to put on Cocoa Melon on YouTube. It just They hate it just as much as well. In toddlers, tantrums may be annoying and requiring of discipline and education, but in adults, tantrums are deadly because adults are capable of a lot more damage than a toddler is. And this is where we enter Queen Jezebel Jezebel has a reputation in the Bible and boy did she earn it you know she let you know Ahab we we see in a lot of the stories like Ahab is kind of being led by the nose we know that Jezebel was really the one calling the shots you know she introduced the pagan worship had all the prophets of God killed you know she the one who sent the threat to Elijah that sends him spiraling into fear and even in Christian circles to this day, right, the name Jezebel is an insult, right? Like, oh, this person is such a Jezebel. You know, that's what people use. And we see here the same thing, of her in, the same effect of her influence, right? When Ahab came home sulking, the Bible tells us in verses 8 to 10. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But sit two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And this was a plan that she hatched in the twinkle of an eye. And as she sees her husband like, why are you not eating? Oh, pff, I'm going to deal with that. Like, get up and eat. And there's already murder in her mind. It's like quite a spectacle, I would say but it was deadly. Her response was to resort to murder. And the Bible tells us in the book of James that desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The language that the Bible uses here is the language of maternity. Which in itself is a very beautiful thing, right? Like, it's motherhood, it's parenthood. We think of a woman conceiving a baby and, you know, all of the joy that brings. You know, you've been waiting to you know, have this baby and you're expecting. You go out and you buy things. You paint the room. There's a lot of joy. Your friends and family here and they're happy with you. There's anticipation. There is a buildup as the baby grows in the mother's womb the Bible tells us also here that desire conceived gives birth to sin and that sin starts in our hearts in the moment when we have resolved to go against the will of God and Jesus tells us the same thing um, in the New Testament when he says that we have heard in the past that you know do not kill but he says whoever even just hates their brother or sister is guilty of killing them in his heart so our desire conceives sin, and that sin becomes in us. And then the sin starts to grow, right? Often one sin leads to another. When we sulk, then we lie instead of doing what the Bible commands us, which is to confront uh, hurt, to talk to the people who have offended us, or to leave our gifts at the altar when we know someone else has something against us and go to them and make peace. We don't do that. We let it grow. And one sin gives birth to another, and it keeps growing. And this is the same way that this picture is painted here of the conception and sin which is grown. And then when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And so you can think of it in the same way. This graphic picture for a woman who is expecting and the baby is grown and grown when it's time to give birth. The baby is still born. The joy and anticipation is immediately muted. And I want to be sensitive about that because I also know that it might be hidden. This might be hidden, close to home for some people. But that's the graphic image that the Bible paints here of what sin does to us. We begin with that promise of something that's going to be good. We see it in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Genesis. Eve desired the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible tells us she saw that the apple was good for the, ripe for the taking, good to the eyes and good to eat. That was the promise. And when she took it and ate and gave her husband, it brought death. Sometimes when we sit and someone has hurt us, and we begin to premeditate the revenge that we're going to get back at them, how we're going to cut them deeply, Or how we're going to gossip and slander their name. It feels like sweet. I'm going to get my justice. There's that promise. That anticipation. But when we arrive there. We are empty. We are far away from God. We are broken and we are not healed. Sin deceives us. And that's also why Satan is called the father of lies. Because every sin begins with that lie at its core. That we know better than God. That what God says that God doesn't want the best for us. And so we, we know better and we can do better. And that this path that we choose would bring us something good. It's the same. Even with sexual sin. The promise of something good. It's like, oh, I'm looking forward to this. Oh, this person treats me better than my spouse. And then we start conceiving and it's growing. Or be it pornography as well. There's an anticipation. But when we get there, we realize that we are empty, we are desolate, we are broken, and we are far away from God. Death has been the result of sin. This death is spiritual death, separation from God. But sometimes sin also leads to physical death. And because we are in a sinful world, we are affected by the sin that goes on in the world. Naboth didn't deserve to die. He did everything right. He honored God. He was respectful to the king. He obeyed God's law to not sell his vineyard. But it cost him his life. Not because of his sin, but because of the sin of others. And that's the same way in the sinful world. Sometimes our sin can lead to death. Often we will find ourselves at odds with the world. Just because we live in it. We would find ourselves having to make a stand for God and then we would face ridicule and might get fired. For some, it's even worse. Some face persecution and physical torment and death. Some get abandoned by their families and left with nothing but suffering and pain. This goes on in many parts of the world today, if not here, where we are blessed to be able to gather and worship openly. And this is the anatomy of sin. It starts with a desire which conceives and gives birth to sin, which grows and fully gives birth to death. But what can we do about this? The first thing we can do is to pray for God's help. The Bible tells us, In Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Our obedience to God is ordained and enabled by God. So we must look to him for strength. It's not by our own willpower. Willpower will only carry you so far. But we must pray to God for the strength. When you feel the desires raging in you, when you feel that seed begin to be sown, you start to feel yourself getting angry or wanting something or feeling like you've been cut out of line for that promotion or whatever. You start building resentment. Take it to God first. The next thing we can do is to search our desires. And one prayer we can pray is the one David prayed in Psalm 139. It's to search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a bold prayer to pray because when we pray it, then God is going to start searching our hearts and he would bring things up to us. Some things that maybe we didn't even know were there that we, or know that they were offensive to God. God would show us those core desires that lead us into temptation. Because a lot of times when we are reacting, we're not even reacting to the core desire. Sometimes it's triggering something, a wound from our past. Sometimes we're just feeling less valued. So we take down someone else so that we can feel better about ourselves. We can ask God to search us and to help us understand why am I feeling this way? So that we can lay it at the cross and be healed instead of falling into sin. And lastly, we see we should flee evil desires. Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2 verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We are supposed to flee. So when you find circumstances or things that would cause you to sin, We're not just supposed to stand there and trust God. We're supposed to trust God, yes, but the Bible also tells us to flee. And how do we flee? The Bible tells us we flee by pursuing. You remember the parable Jesus told? Well, it's not a parable, but it was just a story about, you know, how a demon leaves a person. And when it's cast out, it goes wandering. And when it comes back and finds the place clean and empty, keyword there being empty. It brings seven other demons stronger than itself and occupies the place. So we don't flee sin by saying, Oh, I will not do this, I will not do this, I will not do this. Positive affirmation will only get you so far. But being enabled by the Spirit of God, we are supposed to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We're supposed to dwell in the Word, meditate on the Word of God, so that we will be careful to obey it. We flee by pursuing God, by pursuing righteousness. The Bible says we pursue it along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We pursue it in community, in fellowship with one another. That is how we flee from sin. By confessing our sins and desires to one another that we may be healed. Not necessarily that we may be forgiven, but we confess to one another, as the Bible tells us, so that we might be healed. So we can go to one another and say, "I'm, I'm feeling this desire, there's this thing going on with me. Can you pray for me? Can you walk with me? Can you help me to be accountable? We flee by serving others, by occupying ourselves with the things of God. So whatever you face today, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that we have the grace to face it because we have a God who does not leave us alone. And that no matter what the trials may come, our faith may hold our anchor will hold because we will be anchored in Christ, who is the solid rock. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Whatever things you are facing is common to mankind. You're not alone, you're not the first person to face it, you wouldn't be the last. But God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it let's pray dear Lord we thank you for your word just come to us reminding us God how we do fall into sin by the desires of our human nature which lead us away from you help us Lord to be anchored in you so that when the trials and the temptations come we would rely on you for a way out and honor your name and shine a light in the world may your word take root in our hearts may we your oh God pray this prayer that you may search us and reveal in us anything that is not of you so that we may confess it and be healed let your word O oh God do as you have promised to not return void